Conversations on Healthcare with Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, a month left to go before 2015 draws to a close, and a couple of important topics to note. First, December 1st, World AIDS Day. While treatment have improved, where most HIV positives can manage the infection as a chronic disease, still some 38 million people have become infected globally since the year 2000. And even with the advent of better treatment options, Mark, 23 million people have died from AIDS-related causes. The vast majority of the 37 million people who live with HIV worldwide live in third-world countries, almost 3 million of them children, and the great majority of them in sub-Saharan Africa. While the prevalence is far lower in the Western Hemisphere, it's an issue that doesn't get talked about enough in the U.S. There's an estimated 50,000 new infections every year in this country, and about, and it's so important to make HIV testing a standard part of healthcare to remove the stigma and to get patients the life-saving treatment they need and keep infections from spreading. And actor Charlie Sheen's recent disclosure about his HIV-positive status is a stark reminder, as if we needed one, that the infection is still very much a health issue that can impact anyone. Global efforts have increased in recent years to get the antiretroviral treatments to those who were infected. Currently, about 15 million HIV-positive people are receiving the life-saving treatment, but millions more are still in need. Another issue that's taking center stage this month is climate change. And the Climate Change Summit is happening in Paris, with global experts from the front lines gathering to try and reach agreement on solutions to this issue which threatens the health of the entire planet. We're still dealing with a climate change denial, which is hard to believe, Margaret, fostered largely by certain political and corporate interests. But the experts we've spoken with are in agreement. It's here. It's already having a negative impact on human health, from droughts leading to starvation to extreme weather events. Well, Margaret Chan of the World Health Organization calls climate change the defining issue for the 21st century. So let's hope we can come to agreement on some strategies to address it. 21st century healthcare is also experiencing much change. Our guest today, Dr. Neil Shaw, is author of the critically acclaimed Understanding Value-Based Care, which looks at ways the healthcare system can be recalibrated to incentivize the quality of care while containing the cost of care. And Lori Robertson will stop by. She's always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Dr. Neil Shaw in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. Big Pharma getting even bigger. The boards of Pfizer and Allergan have agreed to a $160 billion merger in which the Irish-based maker of Botox and the New York-based maker of Viagra agree to join forces, ostensibly allowing Pfizer to change its home base to Ireland. The move would allow Pfizer to take advantage of Ireland's more favorable corporate tax rate and still conduct business as before. The move would create the largest pharmaceutical entity in the world and save Pfizer about 7% in tax payouts. Such tax inversion deals are frowned upon by the Treasury Department, which is initiating new rules to discourage such inversion deals. Pfizer's officials claim it's not just about the inversion, claiming they get Allergan's additional expertise in allergies, obstetrics and dermatology. 
United Healthcare has unleashed a shot over the bow on the Affordable Care Act, saying it was considering pulling out of the federal exchange. United Health Group laid out a litany of reasons on why it may stop selling individual health insurance through federal and state markets in 2017, a move some see as an effort to compel the Obama administration to ease regulations and make good on promised payments. Those problems, including low participation by healthy people, have led to financial losses, according to United Health. The firm did not say it would definitely halt sales in 2017, but warned it would strongly consider doing so based on what happens in the next few months. Access to expensive drugs is a cost challenge for many patients these days. But if you're on Medicaid and you've got hepatitis C, you've got bigger challenges. A recent study showed close to half the Medicaid patients in need of the costly new cure for hep C were denied. A 12-week course of treatment for one patient can reach more than $90,000. The new drugs generally cure the disease in most cases, but because of the hefty price tag, insurers often restrict access by limiting the availability to people whose livers show serious signs of damage. And giving thanks is not just good for the soul. Apparently, it's good for the heart as well. At least a healthy dose of gratitude is good for your heart health. According to researcher Paul Mills, a professor of family medicine and public health at the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine, he did a study recruiting 186 men and women, average age 66, who already had some damage to the heart. They each filled out a standard questionnaire to rate how grateful they felt for the people, places, or things in their lives. Turned out the more grateful people were, the healthier they were. They had less depressed mood, slept better, and had more energy, according to Mills. He also followed patients over time and found those who wrote in a journal several times a week, jotting down specific things they were grateful for, did even better long term. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Neil Shaw, founder and executive director of Cost of Care, a global NGO that seeks to help delivery systems provide better care at lower cost. He's the co-author of the highly acclaimed Understanding Value-Based Healthcare. Dr. Shaw is an assistant professor of obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive biology at Harvard Medical School with a practice at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. He's an associate professor at the Ariadne Labs for Health Systems Innovation, where he leads a 50-hospital consortium linking administrative management to clinical performance. He was named as one of Becker's Hospital Review, 40 smartest people in healthcare. He earned his master's in public policy at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard and his MD at Brown University. Dr. Shaw, welcome to Conversations in Healthcare. Thanks so much. Oh, you learned uh, pretty early in your medical training about the huge variations in healthcare pricing and how medical training did very little to prepare future clinicians for thinking about delivery from the value perspective. And, uh, you know, you connected the dots early, spurred you to add some studies at uh, Harvard's Kennedy School of Public Policy in order to learn how to develop strategies to confront challenges. You and a couple of uh, your partners launched Cost of Care uh, in 2009 with the mission of transforming America. Americans' healthcare delivery. I'm wondering if you could share with our listeners more about the goals of the organization and how that mission has evolved. Absolutely. So generally the way medical school works, you uh, spend about a quarter century in a classroom. And then when you're in 25th grade or so, when you're a third-year medical <laughs> student, they finally let you put on a white coat and touch real patients. And I actually signed up for medical school at a young age at 18. I was at a program at Brown that's like a Brown for Life thing. You sort of do four oh, yeah. years of college and then you go right into med school. Mm-hmm. And my idea of being a doctor was mostly based on what I'd seen on TV. 
and uh, during your third year of medical school, your job is to kind of walk into every door of the hospital and learn what happens there. For the first time, I got a sense of our fallibility as well. And in particular, I noticed that, you know, in in Providence, Rhode Island, where I was in school, uh, especially the patients that come to see students and residents, uh, they're they're not the ones with the deep pockets. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that we were making a lot of decisions in a vacuum without really any sense of how our decisions impacted what patients were paying. And the most surprising thing to me was that, uh, you know, when, when you're a third-year medical student, everybody above you seems omniscient. You know, even the fourth-year medical students seem to know everything. <laughs> and uh, this was the one thing that even the most esteemed professors didn't really have a lot of insight into. Well, Dr. Shaw, the, the notion of value-based care, I think, has finally started to really gain some traction in this country. And certainly, I'd give some credit to that, maybe to the policy initiatives in the Affordable Care Act and changes to the way uh, CMS is paying for the value of care received. But you're an OBGYN. You practice within a pioneer ACO. So you've had a pretty firsthand look at some of the real challenges in getting organizations and practitioners to think more about value-based care. And you say it's not an operational change for practitioners, but it's really a huge cultural change. What have been some of the greatest challenges so far in shifting the culture? I mean, I think often when people talk about healthcare reform, they're conflating two things. There's payment reform and then there's delivery reform. And I think the Affordable Care Act, accountable care organizations, sort of risk-based contracting or value-based payments, a lot of that has to do with uh, sort of top-down incentive to think more about value. You know, in 1994, you were still getting AOL CDs sent to you in the mail, and that was the state (laughs) of the internet. Uh, Whereas today, uh, the internet's very, very different, and every other purchasing decision we make is based on, you know, Yelp and Travelocity and other sites that have transparent quality and pricing information. And I think in 2015, there's a similar expectation that we should be able to do the same in healthcare. At the same time, a lot of patients are facing very high deductibles. So I think, you know, where patients are with this, both in terms of their exposure to cost and in terms of their expectations around information and transparency is very different. Um, and I think in many ways, that's what's pushing not just payment reform, but like delivery reform. And now it's incumbent on us as clinicians to figure out how we fundamentally re-engineer the way we deliver care. And, you know, that takes some heavy lifting for sure. You know, I think there's, uh, Dr. Shaw, a lot to rejoice about in the Affordable Care Act in terms of the coverage it's provided millions of Americans. But there's been a dramatic rise in recent years in the out-of-pocket expenses for uh, many of those Americans covered under the Affordable Care Act. And you noted in Massachusetts that, uh, which has had almost uh, about a decade of universal coverage, health expenditures are still a leading cause of personal bankruptcy and financial difficulty for consumers. And so tell our listeners about the solution that cost of care is looking at to incentivize players and payers and providers and consumers alike? You know, we were seven, eight years ahead of the rest of the country in terms of covering everyone in Massachusetts, but now we're seven or eight years ahead in terms of running out of money to pay for it, Mm -hmm. which we're much less proud of. And because we didn't have, especially nationally with the Affordable Care Act, it's not like we had a, a new pot of money. We just sort of spread it around more. And so there's more people in the system, but those people have less good insurance. The average silver plan, if you sign up for uh, health insurance on the exchange, has deductible that's three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000, which is real money for most people. Mm-hmm. And then when you couple that with all of the sort of arbitrariness around pricing, you know, one CT scan will right. be a big, big part of that deductible. So in terms of our work, and it goes back to the original question around sort of our mission and how it's evolved, we've organized our efforts into three areas. 
we started off primarily as an advocacy organization, trying to build will within the profession, the clinical professions, to consider cost. Because not only was I not taught very much about costs when I was a medical student, but I was actually specifically taught that costs weren't something I should mm-hmm. be thinking about. So what we've done over the years is we've collected now over 500 stories, real stories from patients, clinicians, and healthcare administrators as well from all over the country that illustrate these sort of routine opportunities to make care more affordable for patients. And we've disseminated them to well-positioned stakeholders. And in, in doing that, we've tried to bring attention to all the opportunity there is to improve care around affordability just by making different decisions. But then the clinicians on the ground really didn't have the skills or tools or knowledge that they needed. There was still something missing, and that's where the book that you mentioned came from. Uh, and then we realized that you can you can educate clinicians, they can have the will to consider costs, but if you embed them in systems that set them up for failure, you're not doing any good. So we now have an implementation piece of our our work, too, that's trying to think about how you design the system around the clinician to help them make better choices. Well, Dr. Shah, I want to talk about your book, Understanding Value-Based Care. Uh, Don Berwick, uh, the president emeritus at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, who we all know for his contributions to patient safety, called this book an, an instant classic because it offered frontline clinicians a raft of practical ideas to make healthcare dramatically safer, uh, more patient-focused. So let's talk about those actionable strategies. What, what are those actionable strategies for individual clinicians or organizations? Uh, yeah, we were very careful in the book to make sure that it wasn't a health policy book. You know, the book starts off by just sort of trying to help people understand why we are where we are now, including why are healthcare prices so opaque. Because when you look at the average American medical bill, if you're actually staring at a medical bill and you're a physician or a nurse, it's probably like the first time you've really scrutinized one. Um, The second problem is that the prices are arbitrarily determined and often inflated. But the problem with that issue is that clinicians don't feel ownership over that issue because they don't set prices. The third problem, which is the much bigger problem that clinicians directly own, though, is that a lot of the line items on the average bill don't need to be there. You know, about a a third of the things that we decide to order uh, as clinicians don't measurably improve healthcare outcomes. Um, But we we found in our research and our work that there's actually 10 to 20 other distinct reasons why clinicians do this, which, you know, is a much lower hanging fruit than, say, tort reform. And then we get down to really concrete strategies like how to do high value prescribing all the way to how to actually design value improvement projects within your delivery system. We're speaking today with Dr. Neil Shaw, founder and executive director of Cost of Care and also co-author of Understanding Value-Based Healthcare. Dr. Shaw is assistant professor of obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive biology at Harvard Medical School and is a professor at the Ariadne Labs for Health Systems Innovation. And Dr. Shaw, you give a great example of how healthcare has gone far off track. And that's the dramatic rise in C-sections performed in this country. I'm not sure if our uh, listeners know it's currently the most commonly performed surgery in the United States. And we've had Leah Binder from the LeapFrog Group on the show discussing their transparency campaign regarding uh, hospital C-sections. Tell us the kind of strategies you've deployed in your own practice that might be an example for others across the country. 50-year view in healthcare. It's like in 1955, Dwight Eisenhower has a heart attack as the sitting president, mm-hmm. and they tell him to sleep it off. He gets like a month of bed rest. And in 2015, he would have gotten a beta blocker and an angiogram and a stent, and he would have lived 10 years longer. 
And over the last 20 years, the patient safety movement has focused so much on the problem of too little that in many cases we've overcorrected. And C-sections is, I think, the perfect example where it's become 500% more common. Mm-hmm. And what Leah Binder and others have found actually is that one of your biggest risk factors for getting a C-section isn't your own risks or preferences, but it's literally which door you walk through. Mm-hmm. It's like which hospital you go to. And our own work, especially thinking about realizing that it's something about the hospital that's driving this, um, has been really key. With C-sections, you know, a normal delivery, first time, it can easily take 20 hours from when you go into labor to when the baby gets delivered, whereas a C-section takes me 30 minutes. I just did one. <laughs> and, um, you know, so there's always a sort of implicit incentive to expedite the process. Um, emergency medicine physicians face the same sort of thing where, you know, they, they've got a complex patient who comes into the ED. They can either admit, which mm-hmm. is the low-resistance pathway, or they can coordinate care and send them back out into the wild. <laughs> um, and so, you know, in, in many instances in healthcare, we, we face these sorts of choices, and the strength of the incentive to take the low-resistance pathway depends on a lot of factors in the clinical environment, including how the hospital's managed. Well, Dr. Shah, another uh, big opportunity, I guess, is at the level of the practice, right, whether that's private practice or community health center or outpatient clinic, to make the decisions about ordering tests and prescribing medications. And we've followed with such interest uh, in part because uh, one of the uh, physicians on our medical staff, Dr. Smith, Steve Smith, has been a leading architect in this. Um, And that's the Choosing Wisely campaign, which as you know, was uh, launched a couple of years ago now by the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation with support from the National Quality Forum and, and many specialty groups. And their their goal is to get providers to think very carefully about the evidence and the need for ordering a test versus the habit of both what we've always done and certainly what we've kind of trained patients to expect we're going to do uh, and also the overprescription of drugs. Talk about how programs like Choosing Wisely uh, tie into your view of how we can make a difference in scaling back on on things which are unnecessary and affecting the cost of care that way. Absolutely. First of all, Steve Smith was my dean of medical education all the way back when I was in medical school. Yes. Yeah. Um, So absolutely. Choosing wisely has been tremendous. It's become an international movement now um, with several countries from India to Australia to Italy, all who, Canada, all have versions of this. In the U.S., I think there's more than 80 specialties now um, that all have these lists of the five things within their clinical purview that we do routinely but maybe don't have to. And there's a couple things that are really powerful about it. One is that the clinical specialties are taking ownership, you know, including like radiologists and cardiologists and oncologists and other folks who, um, you know, use a lot of expensive healthcare resources are saying, you know, these are five things that we do that we don't need to routinely. And then the other thing that they do is they take the existing evidence for what we should do and they reframe it in terms of the evidence for what we shouldn't do. Um, And I think that's really powerful too. Um, The challenge though is that there are many things in medicine for which we have excellent evidence, but it doesn't really change practice. Mm -hmm. And I think that's sort of where we are with Choosing Wisely now. We've, We've sort of gotten to a point where we've raised great awareness of these issues but then there's that second step of, you know, closing the gap between what we know we should do and what we actually do. And uh, one of the best examples of this gap, I think, is hand washing. You know, as an obstetrician 150 years ago figured out, before right. we knew anything about bacteria, right. that if you wash your hands, you cut mortality in half. Right. Um, and uh, as we learned during the Ebola outbreak in Texas, people are still working on hand washing. Hmm. Um, and so um, for us, actually, uh, 
the hand-washing example was a great clue into how to close the gap because although we're still imperfect at hand-washing, we've improved a lot and we've improved relatively recently by thinking about the barriers to hand-washing. Um, the fact that, you know, there was a day actually when I was a medical student where, you know, you walk in and suddenly hand sanitizer became a thing. And washing your hands went from a couple-minute operation to being, you know, less than a minute. Uh, they started to in institute 360-degree feedback. So if you don't use the Purell before walking into the patient room, the nurse or the patient probably will call you out on it. Uh, and then most importantly, you know, they started to flag hospital-acquired infections. So if you were the one spreading MRSA from room to room, it would get really awkward for you very quickly. Hmm. Um, and then, you know, lo and behold, hand-washing got better. And I think with value... Um, there's a lot of really similar things. If you if you think through the full incentives, um, you know, it, it occurred to me when I was a resident, academic medical centers are rampantly overutilizing care, the most expensive places to get care in the country, uh, yet the residents are not really motivated by fee-for-service because they're basically indentured servants, and they're not motivated by medical malpractice because they're relatively protected. There's layers of hierarchy between them and the lawsuit, and yet they still overorder. Um, and often it has to do with other things that can similarly be systematically solved for. It has to do with trying to preempt your future work. So, you know, if you can order five tests and not think about it again, or you can order one test uh, and then wait three hours and occupy a stretcher, that's less good. Um, and so that suggests a very different kind of solution. Uh, Dr. Shaw, you have a, a busy and productive life in addition to your practice in the organization Cost of Care in your book. You're also associate professor at the Ariadne Labs based in Boston, and it's a Harvard-based research lab linking hospitals around the world to best practices that can improve childbirth and maternity experience. Uh, could you talk about the research you're doing there and who you're partnering with around the world and what you're learning from this consortium? Absolutely. Uh, so Ariadne Labs is a Institute that um, was founded by Atul Gawande uh, a couple years ago, and uh, it came out of the work that they did with the surgical safety checklist, which, um, you know, the same way that a pilot has to run a checklist before hitting the throttle, now surgeons have to do the same before picking up the scalpel, uh, and this uh, intervention reduces mortality in half from all surgeries on every continent, mm -hmm. basically. So, it was amazing, a, isn't it? it? Absolutely amazing. I think after the smallpox vaccine, really? I think the WHO <laughs> thinks it's like the most impactful thing yeah. that they did. So, you know, so there was some thinking about what else, what else, and what are the lessons, especially around not even creating the checklist, but getting to this implementation problem we we're just talking about. How do you, how do you actually get people to follow it? There are a lot of lessons from that, um, and so this institute grew up around this idea that. You know, quality improvement traditionally is very local, right? It's like an administrative function, and there's this sense that quality improvement projects don't scale. In fact, if you're trying to do a quality improvement research uh, project, uh, often you don't even need IRB approval because it's assumed that it has no applicability outside your hospital. But the surgical safety checklist sort of proved that, um, and many other things, medical reconciliation, you know, a lot of these things were truly scalable in ways that made people better. So this is basically a shop um, that's run by a surgeon, so it's not a diagnosis shop, it's an intervention shop, <laughs> uh, where the idea is to do this in a variety of healthcare domains. And as an obstetrician, I'm, I'm thinking hard about childbirth and the fact that the hospital you go to is your number one risk factor for having major surgery. And so we, uh, as part of our work, we created a consortium of 50 hospitals across the country uh, to help us think about what was different from the hospitals that had, uh, you know, that were high-performing and low-performing, and what are the lessons that we can extract uh, and uh, scale? 
We've been speaking today with Dr. Neil Shaw, founder of Costs of Care and co-author of Understanding Value-Based Care, published by McGraw-Hill. You can learn more about his work by going to costofcare.org or find them on Twitter at Costs of Care. Dr. Shaw, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. Thanks so much for having me. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in US politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Hillary Clinton said at the Democratic presidential debate in November that nearly 3,000 people had been killed by guns, including 200 children, since the Democrats had last debated about a month before. Some of our readers asked us if that was correct. Comprehensive data on that specific time frame isn't available. Instead, Clinton extrapolated the numbers based on figures on gun deaths from past years. In 2013, there were 33,636 gun deaths, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. That averages to about 2,800 gun deaths, or nearly 3,000, as Clinton said, each month of the year. These are the most recent numbers from the CDC. They include suicides, which made up 63% of gun deaths that year, homicides, 33% of gun deaths, and unintentional discharges, legal interventions or war, and undetermined causes. As for firearm deaths of children, the Clinton campaign relied on figures from 2010. The 2013 CDC figures for children 19 and younger back her up. Those gun deaths averaged 205 per month. But if we look only at those age 17 and under, the average killed by month was 105. We won't know the number of gun deaths for 2015 for another year or so, and even then, we won't be able to look at the number for a specific time period, as Clinton cited. A group called the Gun Violence Archive seeks to provide near-real-time tracking of gun incidents through media, government, and other sources. For 2015, it counts 11,633 gun deaths through November 18. But that number doesn't yet include suicides, which the group says are not reported the same way as other incidents. The group's executive director told us Clinton's 3,000 figure would likely be right, at least based on a monthly average for the year once suicides are included. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, Email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Clubfoot is one of the most common childhood deformities in the world, a condition that in the past was not correctable without the intervention of expensive and invasive surgeries. In low-resource parts of the world, access was nearly impossible, and as a result, Clubfoot is the leading cause of disability in the developing world. The effects on the child are devastating. It also has an incredible impact on the mom. These kids have to be taken care of because they're disabled. 
and often the mother is blamed for having a child with any kind of a problem as well as having a child with a disability. So devastating for the whole family. But a breakthrough treatment called the Ponsetti Method has changed all of that. Cheska Colorado Mansfield was an employee at the University of Iowa where this new non-invasive, inexpensive intervention was developed, which corrected the problem in a series of months, often before a child even begins to walk. The healthcare provider gently manipulates the tendons and ligaments in the foot and moves the foot about 10 to 15 degrees and then places the feet in a long leg plaster of Paris cast. That cast stays on for one week and then they repeat the process, and they just gradually move the feet. She and her colleagues founded Miracle Feet, a nonprofit organization that identifies children throughout the world born with club feet, who can be treated for about $250 per child, a tiny fraction of what the surgery would cost, and just as effective in treatment of the condition. Today, Miracle Feet supports over 100 clinics through partnerships with 25 different partners in 12 different countries, already having given thousands of children in the developing world the chance to walk, run, play, and to grow into productive adults. Miracle Feet has earned numerous awards for its innovative treatment design and its ability to be easily deployed in low-resource settings. They have to sleep in a brace at night. The one that we've made, the one that's winning the awards, is made out of plastic. We came up with a brace that the shoes clip on and off. It's adjustable. The angles are fixed, so there's no problem with the medical efficacy of it, and we can produce it for $20. So we've essentially come up with a design that enables us to do everything the U.S. brace does, but for a fraction of the cost. Miracle Feet, providing a low-cost treatment for children born with club foot around the world, giving them a chance to live active and fully productive lives. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.